welcome to Film Disruptors, Season 1, Episode 10. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show which brings you the game changers in film, whether that's in finance, sales, distribution or storytelling. And this week we really get into the fabric of virtual reality and immersive storytelling as I'm delighted to welcome one of the world's experts in this space, Ingrid Kopp, to the show. I talked to Ingrid recently from her base in Cape Town, South Africa, where she took some time out having recently returned from Tribeca, where she curates Tribeca Storyscapes, which is the festival's pioneering, immersive and interactive section. So Ingrid has been and is right now at the forefront of VR and immersive storytelling for many years. Uh, and if you're interested in this space or just curious, there's so much great information here that she shares. It's got an incredible perspective on the storytelling aspects, festival aspects of it, uh, financing. We, we cover it all in this conversation. Ingrid also discusses her new and very exciting project, Electric South, which is all about creating immersive African stories and provides some very powerful advice, I believe, for emerging storytellers. If you are enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly, subscribe on iTunes. Just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe to ensure you get all the latest episodes as soon as they drop. Secondly, if you go to the home of Film Disruptors, that's www.alexstoltz.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter. And this is also where you can find out more about all of the guests, access the Film Disruptors back catalogue and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And that just leads me to say thank you for listening. And now I'm going to hand you over to Ingrid Kopp. And I started the show by asking Ingrid about Tribeca 2017. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks very much for taking the time. And so the listeners can picture, where do we find you today? I am in Cape Town in South Africa. That's where I'm, I'm based. I moved here from New York uh, nearly two years ago. Okay, wow. And you are recently back again from New York, I know, because you've, you've been at Tribeca. How was Tribeca 2017? Uh, Tribeca 2017 was a really big year. Um, I don't think I was quite prepared for for how epic uh, the Tribeca Immersive um, exhibition was going to be, even though I was part of the curation team. Um, so I, I, I work uh, for the Tribeca Film Institute and the Tribeca Film Festival as a consultant. I used to head up the interactive department at the Tribeca Film Institute, uh, where I was running the TFI New Media Fund, so funding interactive work, um, and really sort of just exploring, you know, the, the, this field of interactive storytelling. So that's kind of how I um, got started with the, the, the curation. And then um, Tribeca Immersive over the years has grown and grown and grown. And then with the explosion of VR, it's just become a whole other thing, which we can talk about in more detail. Mm. Amazing. Uh, and it's, I mean, tell me, you know, the immersive section this year, 
has it has it grown again? And what would you say are the sort of what what are the key themes at the moment you're seeing in terms of the the, the work you've curated there? Sure. So the way Tribeca Immersive works is it's actually uh, the umbrella for both the Virtual Arcade, which is curated by my colleague Lauren Hammonds, and then Storyscapes, which is actually projects in competition uh, curated by me. And Storyscapes has been running since 2013. So this was our fifth year. Uh, and at the beginning in 2013, we didn't have any VR at all. I think the first year we had VR was 2014. Um, and now this this year we had six projects in Storyscapes and five of them were VR. So that landscape, you know, in the last five years has changed so much in terms of, of VR coming on the scene again. And, um, and I think what was interesting this year for me, and I, th- I think a lot of people responded to this as, just how sophisticated and interesting the projects have become in terms of storytelling. I think the last few years, people were interested in the technology. They were interested in the hype. They were interested in the newness. But I think this year was the first year. I think people were getting really excited about actually what you can do uh, in terms of storytelling. And I think also just seeing a real variety of approaches, which was something that I was really excited about. Are there some key projects you would highlight? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually, there's a few. And I think that, that will, that's what was so exciting this year is actually how, you know, usually you could sort of point to one or two and be like, you know, this one's breaking grounds in terms of, uh, you know, uh, bleeding edge tech or, or whatever. But this year there were there were a lot of projects that I think were interesting in, in different ways. Um, so uh, Blackout uh, is one that is interesting because it's using volumetric video. Um, so this is actually a, a subway car, a New York subway car that you can walk through and you can actually walk around the people in the subway car. Uh, they're, they're filmed volumetrically, and then you can listen to their sort of internal thoughts. So it's really a sort of a portrait of New Yorkers in this moment. So a lot of anxieties around um, around Trump and, and the political climate. Um, but it's just extraordinary, this idea of sort of mixing live footage in a, a, a space that, you, you know, a room scale space that you can walk through. So I think that one was exciting because obviously – uh, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this come up a lot in VR debates. There's an endless debate about whether 360 filmmaking is is true VR. Yeah. Uh, and I think what's interesting with the volumetric um, filmmaking is that actually you're sort of bringing the two together, uh, which for filmmakers I think is extraordinary. Uh, just the the sort of possibilities there. Wow, that sounds, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Can I, sorry, I'm I feel terribly ignorant. Can you could you explain what volumetric? Video no, is? The, yes, you're not. That's not an ignorant <laughs> question at all. So, so basically, it, it's capturing more data um, when you're filming. So basically, you're filming with more cameras. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case, they actually use a, use a depth kit camera, uh, which um, James George, uh, who's part of the studio, Scatter Studios, was part of developing. Um, so that, that that's one that's one actually fairly affordable way of of, of doing volumetric. Uh, there's also other rigs. Eight um, Eye is another example of a company doing uh, volumetric. Other rigs where where there's way more cameras and you're really capturing incredible mm. amounts of data. So mm. I think you know in terms of like it feels like we're in very early days for that right now. But I think the possibilities okay. for actually bringing uh, you know. Um, bringing uh, video capture into a room scale space that you can walk through. Uh, so just being able to see what that might be able to do in the future was very exciting. That sounds amazing. And so just to, um, just so I, I get my head around it fully. So that, that's a VR experience and what is referred to as a room scale VR experience. So it, it's, it's kind of truly 
interactive. It's, it's different, like like you say, to 360 films. Right. And, it, and that's actually maybe a good thing to, to just mention is, you know, the way we set up the spaces at uh, Tribeca Immersive depended obviously on, on what the pieces were made for. So we had some uh, 360 pieces in the, you know, using the Samsung Gear VR. So those were on swivel chairs, you know, you, you, you put the headset on, it's got the phone in it and you can move around, you can see in 360, but you can't actually stand up and walk. I mean, you, you can, but it's not going to, mm-hmm. you're not going to be actually walk, be able to walk through the space. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Vives, which is what Blackout uses, uh, where you've got two base stations, which are mapping out a square and you can move anywhere within that square and you're being tracked your movements are being tracked. So that's room scale. And then there's the Oculus Rift, which has one camera. Uh, so that one camera p- creates more of a triangle, a cone, if you like, of um, uh, of space that you can move within. Right. So, you know, obviously, depending on what you're producing your work for, uh, it, it, it's a different kind of experience for the audience. And there are different affordances. So there are different things that you can do depending on what, which, you know, what kind of hardware and workflow you're using. Thanks for explaining that. That's that's really that's really helpful. What else stood out? So just to give you a, you know a sense of like the the range uh, of pieces, we also had Hallelujah, which was using the Lytra camera. So this actually, I, I haven't actually seen the Lytra camera in in a um, in use. So I mean, I think someone else would probably give a better description of it. But it basically allows a certain amount of movement within the within the image you're looking at so there's there's more data being captured and you can kind of move from side to side um and that i think is really really again very exciting for filmmakers who want to use uh film you know they want they want to be able to shoot in a way that they're familiar with but they're excited about this potential for some movement within that um so i think that was a exciting piece and then we had pieces that were bringing in other kinds of disciplines into the vr space which i'm really excited about because i I love the sort of interdiscipl- interdisciplinarity that's possible in VR. Um, and one of those was Draw Me Close, which was actually a co-production between the National Film Board of Canada and the National Theatre in London. And this was actually a VR piece where you're in the piece and you're playing uh, a small boy. And there's actually an actress with mo- a mo-capped actress, so a- an actress with motion capture that you can see in the piece. And she's actually in the room with you. So when she comes towards you to give you a hug, she's actually there giving you a hug. So it was a really interesting mix of, of VR and live action mm. um, and very, very moving. And I think a lot of people found that piece uh, incredibly powerful. And so there was literally a, a, an actress with every yep. participant. Exactly. Yep. So, so uh, what? Uh, one at a time. Is that how how the audience exactly one at a time? And <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is this is maybe also something to to flag is obviously in terms of well, there's a couple of things, right? So, in terms of exhibit, uh, in in terms of the audience experience of this work, mm. uh, the mobile experiences are still fairly affordable, and um, a lot of people do have the Gear VR, or if not the Gear VR, they'll at least have something like the Google Cardboard or one of the other mm. viewing devices. So those are pretty affordable, you know, as long as you have the right kind of phone, you can, you can, you can, you can experience those pieces at home. Uh, the problem, I think, with some of the, the, the room scale pieces and the, you know, with the rifts and the vibes is obviously you need to have not only the headset, which is, you know, going to set you back between $500 and $800, but you also need to have a really, really amazing fast computer to run the, the, um, 
the application. So it actually has become, it, it is a bit of a niche thing right now. And so, you know, as a film festival, we see this as an amazing space for people to actually be able to experience this work that they may not otherwise, you know, get a chance to, to, to see. Um, but the problem there is a lot of these pieces are one at a time, <laughs> which means that you get these really, really long lines. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got all these people who want to see the work. Uh, there's only so many headsets you can fit into a space, literally, you know, and, um, and, and the experiences are one at a time. So, you know, that, that is as, as someone working, you know, in a festival setting who really wants as many people to see this work as possible, that is one of the things. And I, I've spoken to a lot of curators in the space, and I think it's something we're all wrestling with, mm. is how do you manage the demand? How do you make the experience good for the audiences so that they're not just constantly waiting um, or, or that they don't get a chance at all, you know? And it's it's really, really difficult. Mm. A, an exercise, if nothing else, in, in, in crowd crowd management, I guess. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, you know, that's the thing is I think we, we're all kind of learning what that looks like and how to, mm. you know, I think, I think we've improved year on year, but we still haven't got it right. Mm. Um, and I know, you know, I, I mean, I have to say, I know that there were some frustrated people who weren't getting to see the pieces they wanted to see, or, you know, were spending too much time hanging around waiting and not enough time actually experiencing the pieces. And I think, that is something that, you know, as curators and as, uh, you know, festival programmers, I think we have to take really seriously because it isn't just about what happens when you're in the headset. It is the whole experience. I mean, it's, you know, I think of it very much like the, almost the ritual of going to the cinema. You know, there's all these things that you do that are not just about the film. They're about the ritual. And I, I sort of wonder what those rituals will be for VR mm. um, and how we can create more of a sort of a special <laughs> a special feeling rather than a, a feeling of frustration and like, Oh God, I've got to go and wait and a gazillion lines. Yeah. You know, that that's something I, I think about a lot. Yeah. And I, you know, and again, that that's something I think about a lot because I work for a festival and I, you know, and I, I think curation and exhibition is a really important space. Um, obviously it's not, you know, that if you're making VR, you, you don't necessarily have to think about that at all, but it's, it's just something that mm. I, I worry about. You're listening to Film Disruptors with me, Alex Stoltz. I'm in conversation with Ingrid Kopp. And in this section, we discuss the financing of VR projects, the synergies between gaming and VR. And I start by asking Ingrid whether she thinks the success of virtual reality is inevitable. I, you know, I mean, inevitable, I, I don't know if I would say inevitable. I, I think that whatever is happening is is a big thing. I mean, I, you know, to, just to give you some background, I was working in interactive storytelling before the second wave of VR came along. And there was never as much take up in terms of uh, festivals showing the work. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about other kinds of interactive work, I'm talking about things like, you know, web documentaries and sort of choose your own adventure type experiences mm-hmm. and, um, you know, sort of slightly augmented experiences, those, those kinds of pieces, um, transmedia. And um, there was, you know, there was just never as much interest. I mean, now almost every single film festival seems to be creating a VR section. And, you know, and there's, of course, all this uh, sort of Silicon Valley uh, excitement and VC money around VR. Um, there's a lot of hardware and software developers. And it's a, it's a, it's a completely different space. So I, I definitely, you know, there's something happening there. I'm sure a lot of it's a bubble. I'm sure a lot of it's going to burst. But I don't think it's going to go away. And I think that... Um, this idea of 360 
immersive experiences is here to stay, whether it will be the headsets that seal you off or it will be something more like, um, you know, a HoloLens um, sort of mixed reality experience. I don't know. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll see. The, the thing that I think is just really important, well, it, it's important for me because I really believe in, you know, independent creators making interesting, weird risky work and, and, and being able to do things that are not necessarily, uh, that don't necessarily have a very clear business model, right? I've always been in that space where, um, I just believe that certain things have to exist outside of the market and, um, and that the market doesn't always support awesome things. You know, I just, that's just, I, that's why I believe in public media. It's why I believe in philanthropic funding, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and the thing that does worry me a little bit about VR is obviously, that so much of the energy will go to, you know, games and, um, and, and the kind of work that isn't the space that I want to be in, you know, it won't go to weird documentaries and strange experimental, uh, pieces and, or it'll be all branded. Um, so I think for me, it's just trying to carve out a space and it can be a really small space, uh, but trying to carve out a space for that kind of work to get funded and incubated and supported. And then, you know, alongside that, I love the gear. I'm, you know, I've always been a bit of a sort of tech geek, but I, I, I do get a little bit irritated with some of this, like, well, 360 filmmaking, you know, is not, it's not VR and you, you know, those little headsets aren't good enough because, you know, they are what they are. And of course, I mean, they are a little bit pixelated and you don't get the full immersive experience, but they're still pretty amazing. And if you put those you know, if you put a 360 experience on someone who's never seen that before, it's amazing to be surrounded by a world. And I think in terms of 360 filmmaking, we're only still finding the language of what it can do. So to write it off at this point, I think is very premature. Fascinating. I mean, you mentioned about, you know, in terms of getting those more interesting experimental works funded. I mean, in terms of the the works you created this year, how how generally are people financing those i mean i think you know i think everyone's financing them in different ways so obviously you know the the, the national theater and the national film board of canada as i yeah. mentioned you know they, they have funds available for this kind of work which is amazing i mean the national film board of canada has always been one of the um sort of visionary leaders in the interactive storytelling space before vr came along you know, they did projects like bear 71 uh, you know just amazing work um so I, you know, I think it's a, that's amazing because that's, you know, that's, that's Canadian government money supporting these, these incredible projects, some of which are sort of on the periphery. Um, and I think that's, that's great. Um, there, there's, there is some philanthropic money, which tends to go towards more of the sort of social issue documentary type pieces. Um, and then, you know, like I said, I think there is, you know, there's some VC money in branded content and angel investors. And, and then, you know, I think a lot of the pieces also well, so what some studios do is they do that sort of 70-30 model where they'll do some branded work and then they'll do some sort of passion pieces. Um, and that I think that can work really, really well for some studios. Um, and I think for some it's just a real struggle, to be honest. Um, I know a lot of the pieces, um, you know, I, I think it was really difficult for them to to be able to 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 to, to get the work done. Um, you know, it, is, it isn't that easy right now. And it's not like there's a lot of different places you can go. Uh, if you're making a sort of story-driven VR piece, I think it's I think it's quite difficult. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that that support comes from in the future. Mm. Yes, I guess it's that chicken and egg situation a bit at the moment, isn't there? With um, you know the, the monetization isn't quite there, right? Nor is the 
the, the, the full penetration of the hardware. So, uh, but then again, the hardware manufacturers need these need these exciting works to 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 drive the sales. So, I guess they should be taking you know quite a lead in 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 financing the content. And there is some of that. I mean, you know, uh, Oculus Story Studio actually was just shut down, but they the Oculus have also promised. Um, uh, I think 250 million towards content. I think 50 million of that is for story-driven content. So, you know, I think that they do recognize that without content, you know, the headsets are just, yeah. they're just headsets, right? So, yeah. um, and I, th- I think there is, uh, I mean, I, look, I love games. I'm, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, it's terrible that it's going to be a lot of games. Of course, games dwarf film already, right? So mm-hmm. it's not, um, Games are huge and they're going to be huge in VR. They're already huge in film and a lot of people in the film world don't accept that. Um, you know, it's, it's funny how people in film will talk about games as if they're this sort of weird side thing, but actually they're much bigger than film. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think it's great that there's all this like really interesting, I, like, I just think there's going to be some really interesting game experiences coming in out in VR that I'm really excited about. Mm. Um, it's just that I just think that we need to have a space for this other kinds of work. Um, and, and there's a lot of that happening, you know, um, Chris Milk and his team at Within are doing some amazing pieces. There's some incredible animated stuff coming up from Penrose and, um, and Baobab studio. So th- th- there is stuff happening. Um, mm. but I also want to make sure that, you know, some of the, um, like even the, the, the less, I guess the slightly less Hollywood side of, um, the work can get supported too, you know, so independent filmmakers, independent documentary filmmakers can, can have places where they can go for funding for their projects. You mentioned gaming. How is gaming influencing storytelling? I think it's interesting because, you know, there, there are these endless debates, which I think people slightly roll their eyes at now around sort of the tension between games and, and story. And I think, you know, I think maybe we're now moving beyond that um, because there are these really interesting sort of hybrid projects emerging. I, I think what I noticed before, even before VR came along in my, in my space, um, was this, in my space, not not my space, in, in, the, in the space that I work in, um, is that um, there was this sense that we could learn a lot from, from game mechanics and from game designers and from how people think about um, uh, making and playing games because so much of that was about, you know, this idea of sort of getting into flow, getting into a state of flow and creating an experience where people were very, very sort of, it was very, a sort of very lean forward experience. Um, and people would play for hours and hours and hours. And of course we were trying to make these interactive experiences where we couldn't get people to click um, and we certainly couldn't hold their attention for a very long time. So I think there was a sense of, you know, we, we had a lot to learn and that we could learn a lot from the games world. Um, but I think that, you know, there were some, there, you know, if, if you weren't actually playing games and you were just sort of trying to take a little bit from here and there, I think that's maybe where some of the tension came from. But, you know, more and more now I'm seeing that there's, you know, these really like kill screen are involved in all these conferences. Um, there was a games conference uh, at Tribeca this year. There are more and more hybrid spaces emerging to kind of figure this stuff out. And I have noticed that a lot of game designers have been working, you know, in some of these other spaces. So I think that's that's where I think really interesting things can come 
can sort of emerge. And I've always been interested in these interdisciplinary spaces. It's it's one of the reasons we started doing hackathons when I was at the Tribeca Film Institute, um, because we wanted to see what would happen when you brought people together from these different disciplines uh, and different backgrounds and what they could actually produce together. And, you know, some of it wasn't sustainable, but I think some projects did come out of it that were really, really interesting. Um, so I, I continue to sort of always look outside of the film industry. And certainly now, you know, with VR, looking at theatre and immersive theatre, I mean, I think it's so interesting how big immersive theatre has become and how so many people have mentioned that they think that VR, sort of the choreography of VR is closer to theatre than to film. Um, and I love all of those kind of like, you know, when 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 different fields get mushed together, like what, what kind of emerges. Mm. I just want to ask you about um, user experience design. It kind of, we touched on it a little bit in terms of when you're talking about how gaming is affecting storytelling. I mean, can you, would you be able to explain your understanding of user experience design and how it can, how it can apply to storytelling? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, again, this is something that we learned as we started talking to people outside of the, the film world that we were not we weren't really thinking about the experience of the the audience, the user, the end user of these projects we were creating, because in film we were used to the experience being sit down, turn your phone off and watch the film. Mm. And there wasn't really um, you know, you didn't really have to sort of do things like actually, you know, spend time uh problem solving with, with, you know, test users and like looking at where they were clicking and is the button in the right place? And, you know, is it visible? Are they doing what you think they are going to do? Are they going to do something different? Um, and then I think, I mean, even going back a little bit, you know, just this idea of sort of human centered design. So actually thinking about what people need or want or desire or how to make projects that are actually going to be useful to the people you're making them for. Um, I mean, one example, and I, I always use this, and I, I know it's a sort of obvious, cheesy example, but it, it, it happens so many times as in, you know, this is back in the days when, you know, suddenly everyone was very excited about iPads. And we got so many iPad ideas because, you know, there was this new canvas you could work with. Um, for audiences who would never have access to iPads, you know, they, they didn't own iPads. It would be very, you know, it would be very difficult for them to get hold of iPads. So this, this beautiful project would exist on a, on a platform, on a piece of hardware that, that the audience it was for did not have. Mm. And that's just a very classic example of just not really thinking through the process, uh, not really sort of designing with, I mean, so, uh, you know, along, along with that, we kind of got into this, um, idea of sort of co-creation, designing with your audiences, participatory storytelling, bringing people in a lot earlier in the process, um, working with communities so it's not such a sort of top-down uh, process. And, and I, I, not all projects did this, and it wasn't right for all projects. But I think for us, um, coming from a film background, it was a really eye-opening experience, this idea of, you know, who are we making this for? Like, at what stage are they going to be involved? Can they even participate? You know, um, this is in the, the bad, good old days of user-generated storytelling. Uh, what we found was a lot of the time they wouldn't participate at all. Like, you'd say, we want your stories, and 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 you'd get, like, two or three really terrible uh, ideas, uh, you know, videos. So, you know, I think working through all of that was really interesting. And, and I think that has really stayed with me now when I'm looking at VR because, of course, I'm always thinking that too. Like, who... Who are these VR projects for? If you're making them on, you know, these the, this fancy hardware, who's actually going to have access to it? 
um, how do we try and get more people um, to have access to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think it's made me a lot more conscious of just these connections between, you know, storytelling and, and people, um, which I think sometimes we forget. And then, you know, I should also add, though, because I know that this comes up and it comes up in filmmaking, too, that there's sometimes a lot of pushback around this idea that you always have to be sort of thinking like a, you know, like a kind of creative entrepreneur rather than as a, mm. a an artist mm. and that you should just make the pieces you want to make. And I absolutely 100 percent think that's true, too. I think sometimes you just have to go into you know, your own space, whether it be a dark room or a mountaintop and make work. Mm. And I think that's wonderful. The only thing is you have to then accept that if that work doesn't find an audience, that that might be why, you know, I, and I think that there's a balance there. And, mm. and I, I think also maybe some of it is sort of going into the world and, and then retreating again, kind of a little bit like filmmakers do sometimes when they're making a film and they can be very present for some of it. And then they go into the edit and they actually sort of have to become a bit of a an edit hermit. Mm. And, and that's really important. And you, you start to lose your mind a little bit. You know, there's always a point in the edit where you actually think you're going crazy. <laughs> um, and that's part of the process, you know. And I, so I, you know, I think that there is a lot of that, that, that sort of push and pull, which can be very difficult for art, artists, um, which is where, you know, great producers really come into their own. I mean, I think that's where a really good creative producer can actually protect you and they can do a lot of that work. Um, so that you don't have to, if you're not the kind of creator who wants to do that. So I think a lot of that is creating a team around you so that you don't have to do the things that you hate or that you're not good at or that, you know, feel wrong, weird. It's a team, team game, right? Yeah. I mean, for most people there, there are, there are one man, women bands and I, you know, and I think they're amazing and I, I really admire them, but I think for a lot of people, they don't have all of those skills and they don't want to have all of those skills. And so that's, mm. You know, they need to surround themselves with people who can, you know, apply for funding or, you know, hustle for money or whatever it is, um, do the distribution, you know, all of those things. Um, so I, I think it just really depends on the person. listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with Ingrid Kopp of Tribeca and if you are enjoying the show may I suggest subscribing on iTunes just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe and in this section Ingrid gives her advice for emerging storytellers and I start by asking her about her new project Electric South so Electric South, I, I moved back to South Africa In I was born in South Africa and I had lived in the UK um, and then in, in New York for many years. I was in New York for over a decade and, um, and then I got to a point where I kind of wanted to move back to South Africa and my partner's here and we, um, yeah, so I, I moved to Cape Town in 2015 and you know, I was still working. I mean, I, I still am working as a consultant for Tribeca and other organizations in the U.S. And that was great. But I was starting to feel like, you know, I was here and all my work was there and not all of it felt very relevant to here. So there was a sort of strange feeling of like, what am I doing in South Africa if I'm constantly flying to New York and constantly feeling like I'm in the wrong place? And I also was really frustrated that although there's some amazing things happening in Cape Town and in South Africa and obviously across Africa, um, there are these really interesting communities around design, technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in my specific space, which is, you know, this quite small world around storytelling, interactive storytelling, it just wasn't really here 
in in a way that I felt like I could tap into. So I was talking to a, a film producer here called Stephen Markovitz, and he asked me if I would curate an exhibition of work at the African Futures Conference in Johannesburg in 2015. And um, this was just before I was moving. So as I moved, I was curating these pieces and we, we did a workshop where we brought over six teams from across Africa to learn VR. We had uh, uh, Jessica Brillhart from, from Google and uh, Oscar Rabian and Katie Morrison from Bertov in Australia come and do a workshop on both 360 filmmaking and sort of unity-based real-time interactive. It was really exciting, but it was really frustrating because when I was choosing the pieces, I couldn't find any pieces that were made in Africa. I had one. Um, everything was either, you know, international or it was international pieces about Africa. Mm. And the usual story when international people generally come to Africa, they always make stories about the same bloody things. You know, it's the same old story. So it's always, you know, you can find lots of stories about Ebola and famine and war and blah, 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 poverty. Um, but you can't find a lot of stories that are just about all the other things that are happening on this continent, you know, which is hugely diverse. And of course, you know, there are problems here. Um, and, and of course it's really important to make films about those, uh, and tell stories about those problems and, 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 and try to sort of figure things out through making those stories. I, I totally get that, but you have to have a, a, a full spectrum of, of storytelling experiences, I think. And it can't all flow in one direction. And that's what I was seeing, you know, so much of it was from elsewhere coming here and then being broadcast elsewhere again, this sort of weird post-colonial sort of flow of, of stories. And, um, and so I thought, What's interesting about VR is it's new. No one's really, I mean, apart from some of the real, you know, the, the kind of like the, the real veterans from the, from the 80s, no one's really kind of nailed the space, right? Everyone's figuring it out. The cameras are all pretty much hack jobs right now. Um, everyone's trying to work out like the workflow, the stitching, you know, everything. Um, so it's a really good time for us to be doing that here on the continent because we can be in on the ground floor. You know, we can have skin in the game from the beginning, figure things out with everyone else, and we don't have to be playing catch up. Um, so that's how Electric South was born. Uh, Stephen and I set up it as a, as a nonprofit. And we're now um, basically funding and incubating interactive storytelling across Africa, starting with VR. So we've done four 360 pieces so far. The other Dakar, which um, is by Sally Rabikane, a Senegalese uh, designer and artist, was at Tribeca, was in the virtual arcade. Um, and all the other pieces are kind of traveling to different festivals right now. In fact, um, Spirit Robot by Jonathan Doshe from Ghana will be at Sheffield Dockfest next month, which is really exciting. Hmm. And, and the way it works is we do... Um, we fund the projects, but we also run workshops. We're doing an, another big workshop in July with six new filmmakers. And, um, and so a lot of it is about, you know, kind of workshopping, bringing international mentors over to work with um, artists and filmmakers here, supporting them in their work, which means, you know, sending cameras, uh, training, whatever, whatever's needed, um, figuring out the stitching and spatial sound, all that stuff that, you know, we had to figure out from, from scratch and then helping with the distribution and exhibition as well. Um, and that's both within Africa and, and in international festivals. Ingrid, what's your advice for an emerging storyteller, someone who wants to 
tell a story, wants to make a film or a VR project or or a game. Uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah, they, they they want they want to tell a story in today's landscape. What would you? What advice would you give that person? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's tricky because there's <laughs> there's so many opportunities, and in some ways that does make things quite difficult. I mean, I, I think one thing is you know to if if you have an idea and you you know if you're for example really excited about VR I would say just do it um don't wait too long to ask for permission don't don't try and get the fanciest gear um you know I think it's really important to to try things and and learn it by doing uh, and I I think it's a cliche but it's true mm. um and asking for permission you know can take forever and sometimes I think it's just really good just to kind of get your hands dirty um and psychologically it's it's just so empowering to be able to do that um and you know i have to say with electric south we've kind of done that we you know we've never made this work before um i don't know how to do a budget for for unity based vr stuff um and you just kind of have to figure it out and and then you do it and then the next time you know more um so I, i'd say one thing is just just do it but but the corollary to that or the caveat to that what am i i don't know which word i'm using anyway the the, the caveat to that is you, you do need to be careful. Um, I think, you know, there are all these sort of ideas about being an artist or being a creator that are quite damaging. And I would say the one thing that I kind of wish someone had told me when I was younger is you have to be strategic. Like, you know, these sort of poetic ideas about starving artists in, in the garrets are wonderful, but they're not so fun when you're actually, you know, not able to feed yourself um, or you're in loads of credit card debt mm. so i would say you know it's great, great to take the risks for your art but just be careful about what those risks are you know if you go into some debt that's fine but if you go into so much debt that you can't get out of it that's not great um so i think be strategic um you know i think it's different in different countries because obviously um in the states there isn't a lot of government support for the arts um so i think in general what i found there is people tend to be a lot more entrepreneurial um, and they're very used to kind of like this idea of this multi-hyphenate hustle. Um, mm. So, you know, they, a lot of them will teach, for example, part-time, or they'll do what I was talking about earlier about the sort of studio practice where you'll have 70 for, for um, clients and 30 for your own work. Um, or you'll do, you know, I don't know, like uh, work in reality TV to make loads of money and then the other six months of the year you do your own stuff, whatever it is. Mm. But I think you do have to be a little bit careful because people if you're doing your own work or you're doing work that doesn't have like a clear business model you have to have other ways to support yourself um unless you have a trust fund uh, and frankly a lot of people do right i mean that's why a lot of artists are rich you know white kids it's that's the truth mm. um and that's a real shame so i i think you know just try and support yourself so that you can support your art um but don't be afraid to be a little bit entrepreneurial and a little bit strategic because um, otherwise, you know, what tends to happen is you do one project, you burn yourself out, you run through all your money or all your parents' money, and then you never do another work and another project. And I think, you know, what, what, what is great is to actually be able to create a lifetime of work and keep getting better. And, 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 and that takes support, you know? Um, and I know very, very, very sort of, you know, real mid-career filmmakers who are still teaching to pay the bills, you know? So it's not, it's not like you kind of, the other thing is there's, you don't, unless you happen to be one of the very, very lucky through few, 
it's not like you make it and then everything's okay. It's like you're constantly, constantly climbing the mountain and then climbing the next mountain. Um, so you never get to like the plateau where you're like, yeah, I've made it. You know, that just isn't how it is for most people. Um, and that's something that I kind of, I wish someone had told me that because I think I would have been much more prepared for that. Um, that it's just a constant hustle and that's not such a bad thing, you know, as long as you're prepared for it. Mm. So that would be my advice. Be prepared for the constant hustle, be prepared to support yourself, um, so that you can create the work that you want to create, whatever that means for you. And don't think that you're going to like figure it all out by the time you're 30 because you won't, unless you're really lucky. Great advice. Uh, uh, some, some, some uh, wonderful words there. Ingrid, we're coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you have done and uh, so much, so much I've learned. And uh, really, uh, I'm really very excited about Electric South in, in particular. Can I ask how people can find out more about Electric South and find out more about you? Absolutely, yeah. So um, Electric South, the website is electricsouth.org. And you can follow Electric South on Twitter. It's electric underscore south. We, we, we didn't get the other one. So it's electric underscore south. Um, to get a hold of me, the best thing is to get a hold of me on Twitter. I'm really terrible with my emails. So it's um, uh, from the hip is my, my Twitter handle. So if you tweet me from the hip, I will get back to you. Um, my my email address is also on the Electric South uh, website, but I'm just warning you, I'm not so good at emails right now. I'm a little overwhelmed. Um, but yeah, um, you know, if, if anyone's interested in what we're doing, uh, please do get in touch. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're always looking for new collaborations. So if anyone's doing interesting work in Africa around VR, we'd love to hear from you. We're, we're really, we're big collaborators. That's great, um, and I can I can testify just how responsive you are on on Twitter from the hip. That must have been <laughs> an early an early Twitter. You're an early adopter on Twitter. I was 2007. All right, okay. <laughs> in a, in a, <laughs> ground level, uh, Ingrid. Thank you so much for taking the time. Awesome, lovely to speak to you. If you'd like to find out more, check out the home of Film Disruptors, alexstoltz.com, that's S-T-O-L-Z, where you can download today's show notes, sign up for updates, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and look forward to seeing you again soon.